Treehouse products are crafted to bring you the best that legal, delivered-to-your-door THC has to offer. Treehouse utilizes unique blends of carefully selected minor cannabinoids that get you lit in ways you've only ever dreamed of. From Delta 8 vape pens with innovative blends of Delta 9 and THCP, to the tastiest HHC-infused syrups and hemp flower pre-rolls on the planet, Treehouse has got you covered. Ready to delight in dank gummies and puff-powerful vapes? Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. There's only one E, not two, in treehouse.com. When you go there, get 30% off your order and a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll. You can use the coupon code GENIUS. That's G-E-N-I-U-S. This offer expires August 31st, 2023. Grab your goodies and meet us for some fun in the treehouse. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Judith Curry. She's a professor emeritus and former chair of the School of Earth and Atmosphere Sciences, Georgia Institute of Technology, a way to talk about uh, the truth about climate change. So, Judith, thank you for coming. Well, thank you. I look forward to our conversation. If you would, tell me a bit about your background, uh, how you got to work in and around climate issues, and uh, then we'll talk about your current work today. Okay. Well, I've been in, I spent nearly all of my career in academia, most recently at Georgia Tech, where I served as the chair of the School of Earth. Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for 13 years. My research has covered a range of topics, nearly all of which are relevant to the climate change issue. I resigned my tenured faculty position in 2017. I was concerned about groupthink and cancel culture and just the whole social dynamics surrounding the climate change issue and what was going on at the university. You know, I oh, just, so you, I, even 10 years ago, you were saying it was cancel culture and censorship and all that was rampant already? Oh, yeah. I would say starting around 2010, it started, you know, the, the climate people were early adopters of the whole cancel culture idea, and they may have invented a few tricks, but it was already in full swing circa 2010. And, you know, it just progressively got worse. And so I said, you know, I really don't need this, and I don't see what I can do to help from within the university. So I'm now in the private sector. I have a company, Climate Forecast Applications Network where I help my clients understand and manage their weather and climate-related risks. I'm also fairly active on social media. My blog is judithcurry.com, and I have a recently published book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. So even though I've retired from academia, I'm still pretty active. So what are your thoughts on climate and, uh, you know, whatever, what what people are saying in the news? Is it valid? Is it hysteria? Uh, What's your opinion and what's your observation? Well, as I outline in my book, we've badly mischaracterized the risks from climate change. 
the issue of natural climate change has been trivialized, and that's really a big part of what's going on. And the other issues is a lot of the alarm is being raised about extreme weather events. You know, the heat waves, the hurricanes, cold waves, floods, droughts, and so on. But there's very little evidence to associate these extreme weather events with human-caused warming. I mean, the human-caused warming is a slow creep. We've seen basically two degrees Fahrenheit over the last 130 or 40 years, and not all of that is necessarily attributed to uh, fossil fuel emissions. And the slow creep of warming, really, other than sea level rise and some slow melting of glaciers and ice sheets, is really not affecting our weather in any discernible way. So we've really mischaracterized the climate change risk. Yes, it's something to we need to understand it and we need to figure out how we're going to manage it. But people think that they can control the climate by, and prevent bad yeah. weather by eliminating fossil fuel emissions. And that is basically ridiculous, but it's, it's worse than ridiculous. It's dangerous because by rapidly turning away from fossil fuels, we stand to make ourselves more vulnerable to extreme weather events if we don't have reliable, adequate power supplies. Yeah. Well, I'm in uh, Texas, and in 2021, from my interviews, uh, you know, they've replaced, I think it was uh, 15, 20% of the grid with solar and wind. And when it snowed and it was freezing, all that went out. And then we had no power. The other traditional power sources had reserves that were required by law, but wind and solar didn't. So we were left with a deficit, and then they mismanaged that. So we had no power for a week, and, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of people had no power for a week, and they killed over. 200 people with their negligence, and it all went away. No one cares. Oh, I, I know. And Texas is doing a better job in terms of trying to manage all this than some of the other states. Um, New York State is going off the rails with an extremely aggressive plan to very quickly go to 100% renewable energy and you know, getting rid of coal, nuclear. They've already gotten rid of their nuclear, getting rid of coal and keeping gas around for a little bit. And this is... Why, why would people get rid of nuclear? It makes no sense. There's no emissions. Oh, it, it makes absolutely no sense. The environmentalists, well, they're against everything. Not only are they against nuclear, but they're not big fans of wind and solar either because, because of the land use and the environmental impact. So you've got environmentalists protesting against importing hydropower from Canada and siting of transmission lines and wind and solar. So, you know, people can't have it both ways. I mean, what do these people want? We're all supposed to go back to burning, you know, to wood burning. I mean, that would really screw up the environment big time. I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense. Well, where is where is the calculus between, for instance, say, um, an electric car and a gas-powered car? All the inputs, all the externalities, you know, apples to apples comparison. I've never seen one I've been told if I ever saw one, that would probably be, you know, hit in the back of the head and taken out. I'm not going to see one. What's your experience? Well, electric vehicles, I mean, I, I there's some nice aspects about the t technologies. And in crowded urban environments, they do keep the, the regular air pollution down. But that's the grid isn't ready <laughs> for, you know, massive influx of electric vehicles. But electric cars do have you know, a big carbon footprint, you know, in their manufacture. And they, they come, you know, before you drive one mile, they're already have a big carbon debt associated with each vehicle. So it's no panacea, but, you know, there are some advantages to the technology, but mandating electric cars is a huge mistake. Treehouse Live Rosin Liquid Diamond Vape Pens 
combine the impressive taste and potency of live rosin extract with the power of liquid THC diamonds to bring you an unrivaled buzz and mouth-watering flavor profile. If you like getting lit, head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. One E, not two. When you go there, take your vape game up to new heights. Enjoy 30% off your order and get a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll when you use coupon code GENIUS. Again, that's G-E-N-I-U-S. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. Treehouse, the best that legal, delivered to your door, THC has to offer. Well, you know, a few minutes ago, you know, you said that starting with weather events, uh, these extreme weather events really are not corroborated with, you know, anthropogenic climate change or anthropogenic uh, greenhouse gas emissions. How would you go about defining that or how would you go about explaining that with math attacks and figures that they either are or, or are not having an effect? The news just seems to say, oh, anytime there's, there's a heat wave, oh, it's climate change. But has anyone done any set of calculations to show that this is or is not related to, uh, to human activity? Okay, well, all of this is complex. I mean, if you look at the IPCC latest assessment report, this is the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was published a few years ago. They concluded that there was very little evidence that you could identify an impact from human-caused warming on the frequency or severity of extreme weather events. They, they do see you know, a little bit of a signal in heat wave intensity. But at the end of the day, if you take one of these crazy heat waves, okay, that we've seen, you know, 118 in Phoenix, Fahrenheit in Phoenix, something like that. Well, how much of that is due to global warming? Well, maybe at most two degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, the rest is just weather in an urban heat island. Okay, so only at most, maybe a small fraction of a high temperature is related to human-caused warming. The heat wave event itself is certainly not caused by global warming. It's by natural weather and climate variability, but maybe it tacks on a tiny bit to the magnitude. But other things- how, do you, how do you separate the two? How do you separate the normal variability and variation and then overlay you know, what's currently going on against that to see if there is a difference at all? Okay. Well, it's a very hard thing to do, uh, and people have tackled this in different ways. The most convincing study that I've seen, remember a few years ago, there was a crazy heat wave in Oregon, you know, broke the record by something like six degrees. Okay. Well, there was a very interesting study. They, they took a weather, a weather forecast model, the best weather forecast system in the world, which is the European Center uh, forecast system. And they ran it through the forecast cycle, you know, just like they regularly did to forecast the event. And then they put an increase, and then they reduced the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to 280 parts per million, which is like the pre-industrial value. And they re-ran the whole forecast cycle again. And they found essentially the same thing, but the version with more CO2 had almost two degrees warmer temperature. So, I mean, it basically says that the heat waves do scale, you know, with the amount of global warming. They're not caused in any way by the global warming. The heat waves, the magnitude of the temperature may be spiked a little bit by a degree or two. 
by the overall trend in warming. But that's the only type of extreme weather event where there's any meaningful signal from global warming. The floods, the droughts, the hailstorms, the tornadoes, the hurricanes. Well, what what about the, the uh, number and severity or magnitude of, let's say, hurricanes or tornadoes, tsunamis, et cetera? Has, has that been tracked? Is that going up or down or same as always? Oh, yeah. The number of hurricanes is actually decreasing slightly globally <laughs> since 1980. I mean, to what extent that's human-caused or natural variability, that's open to debate, but it's actually decreasing. Okay, we've got decreasing numbers of uh, uh, tornadoes. Again, they're not tracked globally so well, but in the U.S., the number of tornadoes has actually been going down with time. So, I mean, there, there's very little for people to hang their hat on in terms of saying that fossil-fueled warming is making extreme weather worse. So in the academic arena, are you publishing papers, writing books? And what happens when you do? Are you just attacked with, you know, with valid arguments or just, I mean, like what's happened to you in your career if you're okay about talking about it? It's too traumatic, I understand. Okay. So in about 2010, I started to make a, a career shift. This was when I was still at Georgia Tech. And I started to writing writing more papers about philosophy of science and uncertainty and all this stuff related to climate science. You know, so it was really more policy related or philosophy of science, you know, which you know, I was in the College of Science and they didn't particularly appreciate that. So I, I did a change my academic profile quite a bit back then. And I got invited to submit papers to special editions and to give lectures and prestigious, you know, venues. So that was going okay. I mean, I never had problems getting papers published. Um, that was never the issue. But I stopped actively publishing around to, I mean, a few papers following 2015, but not the high profile productivity that I was doing before. I mean, I was in the middle of changing gears to, I was an active blogger and a lot of my intellectual output was really posted on the blog. Now, these don't count as peer-reviewed academic publications, but they were fairly widely cited, my blog posts, even in academic journal articles. So, and they were in many ways more influential than my peer-reviewed journal publications. So I continued to publish actively on my blog. And in many ways, this makes this model of publishing on blogs makes a lot of sense for the 21st century with the internet and everything. It's much more rapid. You avoid the gatekeeping of little cliques who are trying to protect their own uh, reputation or push a political agenda, which you see all over the, the professional societies and journal editorial boards. And so I just avoided all that. And of course, my, my big academic endeavor is my recently published book, which is Climate Uncertainty and Risk. This is published by an academic press. It was very underwent a very rigorous peer-reviewed process. And I'm not really getting any pushback from people on either extremes, you know, of the debate. So I seem to have, you know, I, I was ruthlessly apolitical in the book and tried to be as objective as possible. The book has a lot of outside-the-box thinking and new ideas, which I think people across the spectrum appreciate. So, I mean, that, that's where I'm at at this point. I'm frequently asked to give congressional testimony, most recently, a few months ago, for the Senate Budget Committee. So I remain very active, but a lot of my actual research is in applied mode in the weather forecast world, 
as part of my company. So a lot of my research in weather prediction and severe weather event prediction and climate risk assessment is not published. <laughs> I keep my secret sauce to myself, you know, and it's only provided to my paying clients who, you know, help me advance my ideas here. My company was recently awarded a pretty important grant from NOAA under the Small Business Innovative Research Program. I mean, this is using artificial intelligence to help us improve our predictions of severe weather events. So I, so I remain very active as a researcher, but I'm no longer playing the academic game and I don't focus on publishing papers in the peer-reviewed literature or trying to appease my peers. So I'm in a different mode now. I call it like I see it. What are some of the uh, arguments from the climate change, uh, you know, advocate that uh, you think carry any weight or do none of them seem to? Like, you know, what is, what's a common rebuttal to what you say or what you publish or what you, uh, what you advise? Okay, well, you know, for the past 20 years, I've been like about four or five years ahead of the IPCC assessments. I started talking about uncertainty before they did in a big way. I started criticizing climate models before they did in a major way. But the latest assessment report, the sixth assessment report, really acknowledged that, you know, that the climate models have a lot of deficiencies and depending on how you tune them, you can get whatever answer you want. And so they had to call <laughs> Call the climate models, and they really de-emphasize the global climate models in the latest assessment report. You know, so I was out there saying this ten years ago, and now they're finally saying it. So, you know, the people who criticize me, you know, don't so much go after my science. I think what I have to say is pretty defensible and well argued. I've been chastised as a denier and anti-science and all this more for social reasons. In 2010, I started criticizing the climate community for what I regarded as uh, <laughs> unethical behavior as revealed by the ClimateGate emails. They were trying to keep their data away from people who had criticized it, and they were out to... They were working to sabotage the peer review process in journals and even get editors file fired. They were actively thwarting the IPCC guidelines for which papers could be cited and the whole review process, you know, and that kind of thing. And I started speaking up, saying we need to do better. We need to be more transparent. We need to make our data and models publicly available. We need to be honest about the uncertainties. And finally, we need to be respectful to scientists who are critical of our work, and we need to engage them constructively. Now, you might think those things are, you know, motherhood and apple I kind of sentiments, but I really angered the climate establishment. And then about a year later, they finally figured out how to deal with me, you know, just call me a denier. And that would, you know, throw me into the other camp. And that would, you know, dismiss and trivialize what I was trying to say. And so the objection to me, you know, if you Google Judith Curry, you'll get a lot of, you know, misinformer and denier kind of hits. But the reason I'm called a denier and misinformer is by scientists who find my criticisms very inconvenient and it jeopardizes their political agenda, which they think then jeopardizes their grant funding. <laughs> so there you have it. What, what, is, what is the agenda? Why, why are people pushing climate hysteria? Oh, geez. Okay. It goes way back the 1980s. Okay. There's lots of different threads that have now converged. If you go back to the 1980s, the UN Environmental Program 
you know, extremely left-wing socialist ideas. They wanted non-governmental world control of all sorts of things, anti-capitalism, anti-fossil fuels, pro-environment. So they seized upon the global warming as an issue that was sufficiently broad that this could sort of meet all their objectives. And in 1992, I mean, there was actually the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, There's a, a big treaty to prevent dangerous anthropogenic climate change. And this was signed by 196 countries, including the U.S. This was back in 1992, before we had any idea what was going on. So you can see the policy cart was way out, was way out in front of the science force on this one. So, you know, this became growing importance on the international agenda and national governments were coming on board. It was becoming, you know, sort of peer pressure in the, you know, the UN world to do this. And government funding agencies were steering money into this area. And so scientists quickly saw, you know, a way to (laughs) tap in and profit from all of this funding going on. And this also chimed in with many left-wing sentiments and environmental sympathies that many academics have. And then sort of following 2010, they, they picked up on this whole cancel culture idea. The whole thing then got exacerbated by the media. So they, they saw this as an opportunity for clickbait. Ten years ago, there were just a handful of people on the climate beat, climate reporters. Now major newspapers and other outlets, you know, have a climate desk with 40 people. <laughs> you know, it's crazy how it's exploded. So this is, you know, big business in a lot of different ways. So there's a lot of support, ideological, financial support for this whole narrative. But it's become, it's almost, it's become a secular religion, you know, where you can't question it. And people amping up the alarm in totally unjustified ways, scaring the kids. I mean, they take surveys of teenagers and young adults all over the world, a huge fraction of them think the world won't exist 30 years from now, you know, and that this generally isn't. Well, they keep revising it. They they had a joke. They said like uh, Al Gore claims, you know, we're in trouble. The world, the world's going to end 10 years ago. (laughs) I keep going and it accelerates and people keep buying this, you know, it's like tulip mania or something. It's completely irrational. I mean, it's become a secular religion with it dogma and its heretics count me into the heretic you know it's just beyond all sense and, and then the issue of you know it's one thing but the solution they've come up with is so idiotic wind and solar i mean it's just not a viable solution as in order to have wind or solar you gotta do a lot of mining which requires fossil fuels and you have to do a lot of environmental damage to do the mining you have to transport the stuff you have to Everything required in the creation of this requires fossil fuels and mass, tremendous amounts. Then you got to service them, you got to dispose of them, you got to, it's just ridiculous. Like, where do these come from? Like magic nowhere? Yeah, but it's it's even worse than that. They don't work. You know, I mean, ERCOT in Texas. Well, that too, yep. Yeah, they don't work. I mean, they're intermittent and they're asynchronous. And, and, you know, you have to have a, a complete backup power system. You have to have storage battery or hydro or whatever which is expensive and or environmentally damaging and then you have to add asynchronous condensers um, in order to do the frequency control and it was really the frequency control that was the issue in that february 2021 outage the the grid it makes the operation of the grid so difficult Um, what does that mean frequency control can you explain that okay you have to have you know inertia in the system You, you can't have you know the frequency 
burying. Uh, otherwise, your whole system will crash and it will shut down. I mean, I can't go into all the engineering aspects, but it's the key aspect to operating the grid and transmitting electricity at the frequency. If you lose control of the frequency, your whole system will crash. And apparently the grid operator for ERCOT was within minutes of crashing the whole grid due to loss of frequency control. And in order to... When you... um. When you say frequency, does that mean the, the amount of power generated fluctuates? Is that what you mean? Yeah, the, there needs to be inertia in the system, and it needs to be a constant frequency in order to transmit the power over the grid. You can't just have fits and starts. I mean, otherwise the whole thing will crash. And mm. in order to you know deal with that, you need to ha- you know carefully manage your backup power, or you need um, asynchronous, or you need synchronous condensers that add some synchronicity and, you know, helps you maintain the inertia and the fr- manage the frequency on the grid. This is an underappreciated problem with wind and solar. And even batteries don't help with this because batteries are still asynchronous. They're not helping with the frequency control. So, so this is an under-recognized problem with wind and solar. I mean, they're just not going to work. I mean, and if they were ever to work, it would be so expensive and require so much land that, you know, it just totally does not make sense. I'm a big fan of nuclear. I see much promise in geothermal. And who knows what else people will come up with, you know, in the coming decades. But trying to rush into this wind and solar thing like New York and California and other places are doing it is a colossal mistake. Colossal mistake. Well, what will happen, you think? If they if they succeed in destroying themselves, what will that destruction look like? And will there be a sudden, uh-oh, and then they'll flip their rig and change at June, or what do you think will happen? It's it's hard to know. I mean, it's so bad in New York. It's so political, you know, that they're just, they've taken down their nuclear. They're in the process of decommissioning all the coal plants and just t- tearing them down. And then they're going to be left with natural gas for a little while. But but they do not have enough reserves. They do not capacity to meet any kind of an extreme event. Um, extremely vulnerable to, you know, outages from, you know, big windstorms, you know, transmission, they don't have any backup. And they, they were banking on offshore wind. But a recent study, I'm actually on a committee for the New York power system related to extreme events. I've got a lot of, you know, deep dive, detailed information that I have access to. And on the whole Northeast corridor, the wind, the offshore wind generation is is correlated. So if it goes down off the coast of New York, it's going to be down, you know, on the whole mid-Atlantic to northeast Atlantic coast, and you're not going to have any offshore wind. And then they sort of didn't realize that, you know, this is one of the findings of this committee I'm on. Not all that surprising if you understand anything about weather systems. So these people, you know, in you know, Germany is probably the best example of a case that's gone really far along. They took down all of its nuclear power and invested very heavily in wind and solar, decommissioned a lot of their gas power plants. With this last year, they've had to fire up all their coal burners because, you know, because of all the issues and the instability with gas from, they were getting a lot of gas from Russia. Russia yeah. Yeah. And so when that was turned off, well, okay, we have to go to coal. So now they're burning, their emissions are higher than ever because they're burning a lot of coal and they've decommissioned these nuclear plants and they've got wind and and the price of their power is the highest in the world, but their electricity. So what have they accomplished? More emissions, less abundance and higher prices and more damage to the environment with all the coal. 
I mean, I can't think of anything worse. And people are looking at this. Okay, but Germany's not backing down on nuclear. It's just crazy. Neither is New York. I don't know. I just really don't know. It's just beyond stupidity. And, you know, people are letting politicians make these decisions. The committee that I'm on in New York, this includes a lot of the utility engineers, you know, people who understand how the system works. And like, it's just now that people are asking the engineers, well, what do you think? How could this work? <laughs> it's funny. You know, yeah, the engineers have been totally marginalized. I mean, you don't hear people talking about the problem, you know, the asynchronicity problem. I mean, that's a problem that only engineers know and understand. And the reason I understand it is that's because... Not only that. I mean, they could, yeah, they could boil it down to, it just will not work. It'll cost a lot more and it'll hurt the environment even more. I mean, you know, plain speech of, it just doesn't work. It doesn't pencil out. That should be understandable by people instead of, you know, frequency control, asynchronicity, et cetera. Well, if you say it won't work, people think it's just politics and you're in the pay of fossil fuels. You have to have arguments and you have to demonstrate it won't work. The politics of this are exceedingly complex and the people who have bought into it are just, some of them are, you know, it's surprising that they've bought into it, this idiocy. I don't know. So, you know, we're going to learn these lessons the hard way. <laughs> where, where do you think like, you know, in New York, all of a sudden, magically out of the blue, gas stoves are the devil. So wh where do they make this stuff up from and who is pushing this BS and why and where? Like, why would they randomly pick something like that and say, oh, it's bad? Well, they, they've got state laws. You know, this comes from the politicians. OK, so this is the politicians. Well, why would the politicians magically push this? Like, again, it appeared in the news magically one day out of nowhere. And then everyone's like, what, what's your stance on the gas stove debate? It was a manufactured debate out of nothing, you know, a few okay. months ago. I know. I, I don't know. Virtue signaling, wanting to be a leader, wanting to be green, thinking that this is a political winner. You know, it's hard to know what's going on, but it's just absolute insanity. Absolute insanity. So now the default position for, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but the, is it true that the is, the is the default position now of a lot of scientists and politicians and, you know, people on these councils and committees that, that oh, climate change, of course, is real. And anyone that says anything else is uh, just, you said, in the pockets of, of fossil fuel producers, et cetera. Is that, is that like the default position? That's pretty much the default position. And in my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, I deconstruct that whole position and I provide an intellectual counterpoint to that whole idiotic, oversimplified narrative. You know, it's an exceedingly complex, I mean, not just the complexity of climate science and extreme weather. I mean, that's ex extremely complex and uncertainty in itself. But then when you get into the social dimension, you know, what's dangerous. People in England are finally realizing, well, you know, our climate was too cold anyways. Why are we worried about a little bit of warming? I mean, people are starting to, you know, like, why have we taken all this for granted? And there's so many hidden assumptions and values. You know, let's, my book tries to, you know, shed, you know, shine the light on these things. You know, this is what's really going on here. Does this make sense? <laughs> the answer for most of the time is no. So it's, it, this will be, you know, like 50 years from now when we see only a very slow creep of climate change and we've gotten past this current energy idiocy, you know, this, this social scientists and historians who look back on this period, you know, I wonder what they're going to say about it because it is just you know, to, to me, it's the equivalent of tulip mania, you know, in the Middle Ages. Well, it'll, it'll be written on uh, on stone tablets because there'll be nothing else to, uh, to use. <laughs>
Well, very good, Jeannie. Um, can you state the name of your book and where can people go to find out more about your particular work? Okay. My book is Climate Uncertainty and Risk. Uh, you can buy it from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. My blog called Climate Etc. is at judithcurry.com. And if you're on Twitter, or X as it's now called, my handle is at CurryJA. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Judith, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about this. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Remember, before you go, you've got to check out treehouse.com. That's T-R-E, only one E, T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E dot com. They offer an array of premium legal THC products, including gummies, vapes, pre-rolls, and more. And they're all delivered right to your doorstep. With unique blends of carefully selected cannabinoids, all rigorously lab tested to ensure quality and consistency, Treehouse products give you the buzz you simply can't get anywhere else. Head over to Treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. Remember, there's one E, not two. And enjoy 30% off your order and get Acapulco Gold HHC pre-rolls when you use the coupon code GENIUS at checkout. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.